This episode of Creativity in Captivity is sponsored by the Curtis Theater in Brea, California. Presenting Don Reed's The Never Too Late Show on Saturday, May 11th. Tickets are available at the Curtis Theater website. Get ready for insight and inspiration on the creative process from an array of artists, writers, and visionaries on May 9th, when Season 7 of Creativity in Captivity kicks off. In the meantime, please enjoy over 150 episodes hosted by Pat Hazel with a stable of creative guests in our listening lounge at creativityincaptivity.fun. This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. Today, we are digging up the dirt on dinosaurs with a world-class paleo artist that creates prehistoric life models for science and history museums. He has created sculptures for National Geographic, the BBC, and the Discovery Channel. We talk about the physical challenge of getting a 52-foot megalodon through a man-sized door, his opportunity to replicate human mummies, and how Gary often disturbed his early teachers by bringing roadkill to show and tell. Coming up is my conversation with the dinosaur whisperer, Gary Staub. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free, you're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. Thank you, Pat. What an honor to, to talk to you today. It's so fun for me. You're one of my un most unusual guests, I will say. <laughs> I'll take that as a compliment. Well, do you hear that a lot at dinner parties? What do you do, Gary? Uh, yeah, I'm very conscious that it kind of overwhelms conversation very quickly. So I make sure that it, I don't break it out until it's appropriate. <laughs> I see. Let's say you don't want to talk to somebody on an airplane and they say, what do you do? What's your go-to? My go-to is an, I'm an artist. And then if they pursue it a little bit further, then I might talk about paleontology. I might talk about archaeology. And then they say, well, that's kind of interesting. How do you put art and those things together? Yeah, it's quite a mix. I was thinking before I had you on, this guy's class schedule included anatomy, art, archaeology, history, science, sculpting, taxidermy. I, I, where do you go to school with that kind of a lineup? I was really lucky in that the school I went to in Nebraska, Hastings College, allowed me to write my own degree curriculum. So I proposed all of the things you just mentioned into a degree format. We went through and then I coupled those things with internships at the British Museum of Natural History in London and then at the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, D.C. Knowing all along that you did want to work in this scale and on these kinds of projects? My interest in paleontology came a little bit later, but I've always been interested in animals. So I started out with a passionate desire to be close to animals. And strangely, it left me with this idea of not only to look at things on the outside, but also on the inside. When you have that kind of a level of interest, you just have to feed it in some way. And of course, as an 11-year-old kid, you know, I'm catching animals and then I pick up dead animals. And then you're like, how does all this stuff work together? So then that led me to an interest in taxidermy, which immediately puts me in a sort of Hitchcockian way with, with people. It's not always positive. Obviously, the image of taxidermy has not been great over time. But what it did allow me to do is kind of chase this interest in anatomy that I have. And then I moved on to the sort of art side of things, sculpture and painting after that. That interests me because it feels like you do have to know the understructure in order to build something properly. Will you kind of share with the listener how much you need to know about the bones and the muscular structure and all of those before you do the outside of something that we see at a museum? 
most of the time when we start a project, it happens that you have to look at the fossils and either you have a very technical, jargon-filled, scientific paper that's going to sort of guide your way through this restoration to eventually make this what you hope is a very exciting art piece for a museum. Or you have measurements, or, or if you're lucky enough, you can actually go to the museum and take measurements from the actual fossils. You know, you start with words and you start with measurements and mathematic formulas, and then you have to create this three-dimensional thing. And I thought about what you do, your final product in many ways are the words. You've come up with an idea, a very, you know, maybe a cerebral idea. And comedy it takes a lot of thought. And to be contrary and to have that the right kind of irony, I think you're brilliant at what you do. So it's fun to be able to have the chance to speak with you. Well, uh, thank you for the compliment, but I will say this. We do two totally different things. But what you just said is something that you're very good at, which is breaking things down. You have to break this stuff down. You have to go all the way back to the bones and you have a puzzle there. And then you have to figure out each layer that goes on top of it. But once you build a thing, you also have to then break that sculpture apart to get it in through a doorway to get it into the museum. So you have to rebuild the puzzle. It's true. I mean, the nature of the business, going back to what you originally said, science is reductionist. So you have to be able to take an immense amount of information and boil it down to something that can be very visually interesting and stimulating for people to look at, but accurate at the same time. But the biggest challenge, it seems, something that I'd never considered when I started working on these things was that you have to be able to get them through standard sized doors as well. So here you are, you've got a 52 foot long shark. It doesn't exactly fit through most, most of your standard doors. I mean, museums, if you break down the etymology of the word, you know, it's muse is where we go to be inspired. It's the building where the muses exist. They're used to having these things of wonder for as long as there have been museums. It's been a collection of wondrous artifacts, but they don't plan for them to get through the doors very well. So they never make huge doors. They always make very small doors. Let's go ahead and use this as a public <laughs> forum to all museums. You should have one loading dock door the size of a dinosaur. <laughs> Let's correct that problem in the world. It is the eternal problem, but we, so you have to plan the engineering of the animal has to be set into the design so that we can get them through the door and then reassemble them in an easy way so that you don't spend two months on site reassembling an animal that you just took out of your studio. It's almost like a fraternity prank. A little to bit. To put this inside somebody's <laughs> structure and they're like, how did that happen? <laughs> Our most recent physical conundrum was to get this megalodon into the Smithsonian. You know, it's a greyhound bus that had the anchor points are about 83 feet in the air. So I have to get up on a lift to set the anchor points. And then the shark itself is much bigger than my first studio apartment on the inside. It's almost two stories thick. It's a whale-sized animal with saucer-sized teeth. Wow. And it has to go together in a way that is invisible when you're done. For the listeners that don't know, a megalodon is, in this case, it's a 52-foot shark that you're putting together. And how much does this weigh that you're hanging it from those anchor points? One of the challenges is that you have to make it so that it falls within the constraints of the engineering of it, 2,500 pounds. That sounds like a lot of weight. An animal that large has actually had to be very thin and very strong. It's really interesting to me because there's sort of a part of you that's Frederick Remington working in the sculpture <laughs> of things. And part of you that probably people imagine is like a real life Indiana Jones, because you do have excavating dinosaur bones in your background. As you have mentioned already, there's a lot of the dull periods of math and 
measurement, the science of it, and I'm sure research. Tell me about the amount of research that goes into any one of these projects to be sure this is as realistic and to scale as, is there missing information where you have to make up what the fur looks like or something? Fossils are pretty amazing in that they can give us a pretty high resolution view of the past, but it only gives us an idea of what the sort of musculature of the animals are. It's pretty rare that you get skin preserved. There are cases where there's like five or six groups of dinosaurs that have skin preserved. So we know what their superficial skin look like and the size of the scales now on certain parts of the body, but there's a lot that we don't know. So that's kind of the imagination part of it. You take that sign bit. You always couple with a scientist and you have to have that vernacular. You have to have the ability to speak with the scientist. And so that took a long time to gain. This is like taking on Mandarin and trying to walk into a conversation and have a very high level anatomical discussion with the scientist and then pull it into something that's evocative because it has to be a piece of art and it has to work. And if it doesn't visually work, as a silhouette or as something that creates emotion inside of the viewer, you've kind of failed. That's always my push is the art has to come first. We got to come up with something exciting. We're the wow of the museum. We need to be the place that inspires kids. We're working in a tough field right now. It's a lot of exciting things to look at and in the palm of your hand with cell phones and all. We still have to be that place where the muses live. We get to, We have to create excitement and information that's accurate and just inspires. I heard that you said that the average viewing time from visitors is really just a few seconds. And so choosing that dramatic pose or that moment in the life of the animal becomes critical in keeping them around, right? Yeah, you only have a couple moments to try and grab the attention of a visitor. Now, museums are sort of self-selecting institutions already. That's changing a little bit, but in the time that we have the eyeballs on certain exhibits or when you have that chance, you don't want to lose it. And I'm very lucky because I get called by museums to create. Sometimes they'll have a, an idea. They want a specific animal and they say, Gary, can you make this species? Or sometimes they'll walk me into a space and they'll say, what would be amazing here? Tell, give me some ideas. That must be great. That is exciting. And it's also intimidating. It's the proverbial blank canvas, right? So it can be a very challenging thing to do, but it's also just humbling to have that sort of level of creative control. It becomes a really fun thing to try and come up with neat, exciting images that are, of course, within budget. It's all business at the same time. So we all have to hit the budget. What, a, what an honor to be involved in a lot of this. It's just incredible. Do you have in your hip pocket a dinosaur or a prehistoric creature that if somebody gave you that and it fit right, that you go, oh, I've always wanted to make a something and you haven't had the right moment? I have a wish list, but I, my career, I've had so many cool opportunities to work on so many amazing historical finds that I can't even make it up. The things that people ask me to do, these experiences, are things you couldn't write in a novel and have anyone believe you. Because National Geographic had asked me to make a replica of Tutankhamun for a traveling exhibition. And so part of that was to go over to Egypt, go down into the tomb with Tutankhamun, and then take measurements from the mummy itself for the reference to create the replica. And so it goes on like that. I've been very lucky to work on a lot of mummies as well as dinosaurs and other archeological finds, but that's one of the ones that was quite amazing. Yeah, I saw that you did figures from Pompeii as well. 
Yeah, it's true. That was a great trip. That was one of the only occasions where my wife actually wanted to go with me on a trip. So we dined our way through Pompeii. It was beautiful. <laughs> you got to tell me a couple of things on that wish list. Even if we don't know what they are, that way our listener can Google them and see what's going on in your brain. So there's a couple animals that I've not had the chance to restore, and some of them happen to be these small mammoths. There's two animals in particular that I'm interested in. Both of them have been frozen in glaciers up in the Arctic. A woolly rhino, which is a super weird and strange animal. And then there's also these small woolly mammoths, these juvenile mammoths only about three or four months old. I think that would be a, one, an interesting trip to actually see the animals and look at the soft tissues and then see how that might inform a sculpture. Part of the reason of it, and as you, I'm sure you do yourself, is like the travel, the experience, the people surrounding that find, you know, that's all part of the whole life experience. Well, let me just say how naive I am. You know, I went to museums as a kid. I just assume they dig up a whole mammoth and stick it on a pedestal. It was like, oh, I guess they must have covered it in dirt and it vacuumed it and put it in the middle of a museum. <laughs> I've been lucky enough. I'm a research associate at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. And so I spend at least one or two weeks a year out in the fields helping them dig up things. And so it helps keep me excited about what I do. And it's a great time away from my phone and my computer. And I just get my hands dirty and sweat. We dig up triceratops and we dig up tyrannosaurs. We do all sorts of stuff. You learn more, I think, talking to scientists in the field and having a beer with them than you do at conferences. That's the real stuff, I think, for me. And I, I try and place myself in a position where I can have those sorts of life experiences. What are the precautions when doing a dig like that? Lots of water. I've been on rescue crew to pull people out who have either fallen and gotten hurt you have to be ready on a lot of different levels to go out. One of the places we went to is a helicopter camp. You have to carry everything in on your back, and they, they helicopter the water in and the food. And then the dinosaurs get a ride out on the helicopter, and then you have to hike out. This is in the middle of Utah. It is so far back that if you get hurt, you're in trouble. So there are a lot of precautions. They make sure they select the field crews to do something more remote like that. They're very careful about who they invite. How about the activity itself? Once something is discovered and the dig begins, I would imagine there's a lot of very kid glove handling and marking and staking mm -hmm. and so forth where nobody's willy-nilly walking through a crime scene. Yeah, it's true. There's a lot of grunt work to get once you find a bone. Usually you kind of walk along and if there's a bit of bone sticking out of the hill, then you'll start digging back towards it. At that point, you start to get a, go a little bit slower. But when you figure out what layer it's in, then there's a lot of pick work and shovel work to get to that layer. And then once you do get closer to the bone, you kind of slow things up. But the idea is to get it down to a manageable size so then we can put a field jacket on it and get it back to the museum and do all the real prep work. All the preparators will do that work back at the museum. Are the bones all typically there in that the animal died and is laid sideways or something? <laughs> I know I sound really dumb. It's like I look at astrology and they say, there's Orion, and all you see is three stars. And I'm like, that could be his belt sitting on top of a dresser. Like, I don't know if this guy's standing up or laying down. So sure. what I'm saying is you stumble across the first couple of bones. How far do you have to go to find the whole dinosaur? Well, a lot of the times you don't find the whole dinosaur. Usually it's isolated bones. So you're going to, the majority of the time, I say 75% of the time, which is a random number, you're going to find a nice isolated bone or a fragment. So you collect that, you, you follow it into the hill, and hopefully you find some more. But for the most part, complete skeletons are very rare. That's why 
the resources will be pumped into the removal no, no matter where they're found, especially if they're rare. Because there's a lot of common dinosaurs like Triceratops. When we go out in the field, oh, there's another Triceratops. <laughs> there's another Triceratops. Oh, that old, that old chestnut, right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so you have to think about, you know, is it scientifically important? You know, do we have a good one, a better one already? Things like that. And so they'll make choices depending on, on that. I know that you, there were teeth of the Megalodon found in the D.C. area. Is that where that shark is in a museum in D.C.? It is. Yeah, it's at the National Museum of Natural History in Washington, D.C. So when you find a tooth like that, you're able to actually cast the actual tooth? Do you measure it and make another replica in order to make a cast from? In this case, we actually did some scans of them, and then you can 3D print the tooth, which is a non-invasive way of creating the tooth, because the print isn't perfect, so we'll touch that print up and then remold that. And of course, it's not just one tooth. There's like seven or eight different size teeth, and then there's three rows on top and bottom, because they, the teeth are just like an escalator. They just fold out, and that one shark can lose thousands of teeth in its lifetime. Shark's teeth are probably the easiest fossil to find. So if you're driving across Kansas and you pull off on a road cut that has exposed rock, which I do often, you can just walk for about a half hour. And I can't guarantee you'll find a shark's tooth, but the chances are, are pretty good. It's the copper penny of the fossil business. <laughs> it's true. Now, you're an artist who... I don't know. Do you sign your work? It seems like it would be a little hard to put your signature on the butt of a mammoth in a, in a museum. But is there some kind of signature work that comes from Staub Studios? If I do my job right, unlike in fine art, you know, in fine art, you're always looking to, to see the mark of the hand, the painter, or the, you know, the thumbprint of the sculptor. But if I do my job correctly, I don't, I'm not part of the equation. So I don't want to show that an artist has been there. It's the animal first. And so un unlike fine art, that's the signature that you talk about is just, I shouldn't be there. No one should even think that someone made that. Right. I'm successful if no one even thinks about it and all they see is the animal. I think that's great. I mean, disappearing into the work puts the work forward and then yeah. they're thinking about the animal and its history and where it is. But today yeah. we aim to change that. You can humble brag. It is okay to talk about it. And hopefully they just fleetingly think of you as they go through the museum. I just think you have such a <laughs> huge body of work. And not everything isn't super grand scale. You also work on animals and things that are very small in scale, but trying to keep those true as well, right? Exactly. The smallest, I've made models of, of a flea before. Enlarged, of course, slightly larger than life size. Fleas? A flea, yes. And for a children's book and talking about the mechanics of how they jump. So that would probably be one of the smallest... Uh, we've done some microorganisms as well, everything from fleas up to life-size dinosaurs. So some really big projects, one for the Indianapolis Children's Museum that was 53 feet tall and 75 feet long. That's lifting the roof off of the museum. Yeah, we do get a great variety of things. Sometimes we'll work on these tiny little primates and you name it, and we've got the whole span of natural history. What kind of a structure was that that you put in that museum? The animal itself was called a Brachiosaurus. The architect designed a bend in the roof. So we have about 6,000 pounds of steel that go up and attach to the frame of the building. And it pierces glass as well. The head is goes through the glass. 
and then it's lifting the roof up for the its baby to sort of jump through. It's a children's museum, so there's a little bit of whimsy in it. Yeah, that's a great event. And even when you talk about that dinosaur, you have to know whether that dinosaur was a carnivore or herbivore just to know what to do with its body shape. It's all based on bones because that's really the only thing we have. And then you look at the next best related thing to them that might be alive today and you use those as uh, you know, as a good analog to fill in the missing bit. So I look at big animals that are around today like elephants and giraffes and whales, things that might have the same kind of constraints and translate those to those fossil bones. You've been called into service to do forensics reconstruction, which is different than what you might do for a museum. Did you have that on your list of to-dos that people could, could contact you? Or like, how does that call come? I get some great phone calls. <laughs> Sometimes you want to just put your hand over the mouthpiece and say, I just got a phone call. It blows my mind sometimes, the, the things that people ask me to make. But one of those, there was a very particular site in the Sahara Desert called Gobero, and it yielded a lot of human fossils. These are anatomically modern humans, but they had great skulls preserved. So I was asked by the University of Chicago and Dr. Paul Serino to do forensic reconstructions of those. And it's a really neat process because it's super analytical. It's based on skin depth tissue measurements from corpses. And then you plug all those skin uh, depth averages into this fossil skull. But there's a point after all of this super technical stuff, you're at three o'clock in the morning, you're working on it and you're sculpting in the eyelids and all of a sudden it becomes a human. It's looking back at you wow. and it turns, it turns that from this inanimate, really medical and difficult process to becoming a person. And that's that magic zone when it steps through the door and you get to this really neat place they're very difficult to do. We have such an acuity when it comes to looking at human faces, right? We, that's what we do. We look at eyes, we look at faces, that's how we're primates. We just, that's how we judge people. That's your business, right? You, you judge the crowd, you look at- <laughs> To look at dead people. Yeah, I try to make them laugh. And then that's how I know they're still out there. But you have to be able to judge the crowd and you, know, you have to have social intelligence. And so we're really good at gauging believability and if, if you try and reproduce a human face, it's very difficult to do well. And so I love the challenge of it. I imagine the eyes are a big part as well. So do you buy eyes in bulk from some anatomy place or do you guys make the eyeballs yourself at the studio? Depends on what it is. Like right, right now, I'm actually making some Mosasaurus eyes, which is a big marine reptile, because we can't just buy them off the shelf. <laughs> there are some that you can small taxidermy eyes that might use that we might be able to use for another animal but yeah they're made from scratch it takes forever to make a good eye because it has to be so it's a place people just go to it is the focal point and if you don't if you lose it in the eye then you're just not going to have a believable sculpture of your team do you have a SWAT team of this is our eye guy and this is our fur <laughs> person and like, tell me a little bit about how big of a team you have working on any of these specific projects so right now i've got six people working for me and we have a really big project and it's a year and a half long project for a new museum in new jersey it's literally built on a quarry where these fossils were found so that's pretty exciting and we've got some generalists we've got some specialists we have one guy that all that he does is do he makes the small tall i'll make a small scale sculpture that's approved by the scientists 
and we'll laser scan that and then he'll mill it in foam at full scale and in pieces and then we glue that all together and then that's what the starting place then i'll weld a, a structure inside of it and then we do the aesthetic skin over the top of that and then paint i usually do the paint but the workflow basically is i do the research make the small scale sculptures and then at that point we sort of hand off and get a lot of hands moving on it let's talk about just for the the general artist and the person who might not know how many stages or layers there are this is a highly dependent upon what the final you know what you want as the final effect and what the client wants so is this critter flying through the atrium space or is it swimming in undersea diorama or is it going to be something that kids can touch so oh. that's part of it or is it going to be in bronze those are all completely different processes from each other but what i'll say is if we've got an animal that's a dinosaur, for instance, that's going to be running inside of a museum in a diorama. I'll do the small scale sculpture. It goes to mill, what we call the mill building. We take it out there. Blake will do the, the uh, milling in sections. We bring it back. And then essentially we plan on a CAD program all the steel that goes on the inside of it. And then we start the fabrication of that steel structure. Because, it, again, it has to all fit through a door a standard door even if they plan for it even if it's a new museum they still might have a bigger than standard door these animals can be our largest one is 53 feet long for this project so i don't care what size of door you have it's just not going to fit unless you make it in sections so we'll go from that point to testing it i build a mock-up door in the shop that's the same size door as the one we have to go through because these are all really weird shapes compound curves and complex volume wise and so we'll work on those and then get it to fit through that then we break it into components that fit inside of a, a semi we have a small scale semi as well that we put the little pieces in the block then we can take them out and do the aesthetic skin on them and then paint and hair or whatever it might be to complete them but you're a pretty good puzzler then because that door <laughs> scale you're one of those guys you want to have on the other end of couch if you're moving up a stairway and through two doors where you go no no your end up go back <laughs> no turn them flip it over yeah i get asked to move heavy stuff all the time well let's talk about your equipment then let's just talk about the equipment because working in bronze and casting these things in your studio there's some major hardware going on there what kind of equipment do you have to have as an artist to, depending on the project, but let's say a big scale dinosaur, there must be some foundry there. I built a small foundry. We can pour small amounts of metal in our shop, but if we're doing really big things, like we did a life-size bronze mammoth for the Omaha Zoo, and that was, you know, 3,500 pounds of metal. We're just not set up to do that kind of metal pouring. So it's better if we create the sculpture make the molds and take it to the foundry and then they can produce those panels and then I'll go and work on it at the foundry. But for production of animals in our place, we've got a overhead gantry because we have to be safe because even if, you know, these animals are made of foam, but they can still kill you. Uh, even though they've been dead for 65 million years, they're still very <laughs> dangerous. So, Describe that to people what that is, a gantry. Yeah. A gantry is basically a track that runs through the ceiling and you can put a, a winch on it and it helps you lift really heavy things and make, make sure that everybody's safe underneath it. So we lift a lot of heavy things. And so we have to be very careful and make sure people don't get hurt. So, but I've been bitten by a lot of things over time, sculptures where you're, you're working on them. And even though they have fixed teeth, 
you can back right into a tooth that'll open you right up. So <laughs> wow. it's not uncommon to have tooth injuries even uh, in the shop. This is the perfect setup for a horror film <laughs> because your studio is full of dead skulls and eyes and animals that come to life and bite you. Uh, you've worked on <laughs> film. I imagine that you've been provided either some consulting or built some things for film. What kinds of things would they be looking? They, their stuff probably doesn't, can probably be one-sided or do, like everything mm -hmm. you build in a museum, there can't be a part of that canvas that you're not, right. your attention to detail has to be complete because people can right. be seeing it from the balcony or underneath. Right. But for film, you probably can cheat a little bit, huh? Well, most of the stuff that I've made for film has been for scanning for animation. I sculpted three of the character designs for Disney's Dinosaur, and they were then scanned and then animated. Dave Krentz did the initial designs on paper, and then I made them in three dimensions, and then they're scanned. And then it's really fun to see something that you've made in clay run across the screen. And then also a bunch of the similar work for IMAX for Sea Monsters with National Geographic and IMAX, and then also Discovery Channel, a number of documentaries. And those were all scans of clay sculpts that then were subsequently animated. Very fun because it's small scale stuff. And then, of course, it goes on the big screen. It's great. Yeah, but they came to life. That's pretty great. What do your kids think about your job? You know, I think they're over it. I don't, uh, <laughs> they, they don't see their dad very often. So that's the problem is that uh, they're both in, both in college now. I think they think it's pretty cool. They both, one has a really strong interest in animals. So there's, there's definitely that. And then the other one is into cars. And so he actually has worked for me a, a little bit in the shop because he's got, he's got a good eye for building things. And so it's been fun. Yeah, no, I, it's a treat to you. Uh, when they're into it, to, to pull them in on stuff. Well, it seems to me the kind of art that you do requires a lot of patience. There's time involved in each stage of it. Even if I was a kid and made a model car, I wanted to paint it right away. Then I didn't want to wait for the paint to dry. Then I didn't, you know, it just seems like you must have the patience of an iron saint. You have to juggle a lot of things. And luckily, because there's a lot of time-dependent things where we have to wait for things to dry, I'm always moving on to the next thing or I'm answering questions. So it's a lot more fast paced than you would imagine it just because of, you know, we've got for this one particular project we're working on, there's 30 sculptures to make. So doing that much research to get all of the information that we need to proceed takes a lot of work, but there's also, so, you know, this morning I'm sculpting dinosaur skin just a little while ago, I was drawing an eye to plan out, you know, the shape of this big mosasaur eye. So it actually is a little bit faster paced than you might imagine, but there are thousands and thousands of scales to make or feathers. So yes, it does take a good podcast or some good music or a good book on tape. I go through, I devour books on tape just because I have to keep that part of my brain quiet while I'm doing tedious work. Oh, interesting. I did see a story about a dinosaur with feathers that you were working on that had mm. a lot of believability. And it was pretty extraordinary. Maybe it was on YouTube or on your website. I don't know which, mm. but I would encourage folks to go check, check it out because it is fascinating that that came from, indicated from a fossil. Yeah, it's from China, and I got to go to China and see this particular fossil. And so it's a it's probably what you would call the sort of great great grandfather of T. Rex, and it's a thirty foot long dinosaur that has these really long quill like feathers all over its entire body, and we had to replicate each one of those feathers 
and then piece them over the entire thing. The fossil shows that there are feather quill formations all along the entire body. And I got to see them in person there, which was pretty neat. And we chose to color those. To do anything believable, there's always color variability. If you were to pluck one hair from your head, mine would mostly be gray. But the, but even inside of that, there's going to be a root color, a main body color, and then a, the, a different color on the tip. So we painted each one of those feathers, three different colors, and then also different patterns. So there were over 250,000 individually handmade and painted feathers that went on that dinosaur. It was a haul <laughs> to get it done. Do you have to age it as well? If you want a brand spanking new dinosaur that's just been painted, <laughs> like do you have to tea stain it or do what do you do to make it seem like it's been around in a dusty pit for a while? Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. I love that new dinosaur smell. You know that. (laughs) People go in the museum, they're like, this looks like it's a week old. (laughs) But you have to lend believability to it. And that those details, exactly what you're talking about, I've thrown buckets of dirt on stuff and then brushed them off. You can also do that that same, that similar dusty kind of patinas to claws and you crud up the teeth a little bit with paint around the roots because if they're carnivores, you usually get a little bit of a residual in there. So if it's too clean, it's not believable. Also, I guess you have to know a little bit about dentistry too, huh? <laughs> it helps. It helps. Like, because the dinosaurs didn't floss, certainly not the T-Rexes because they couldn't get their hands up. That was the death of them not flossing. <laughs> Bring on the T-Rex jokes we get. Yeah. No, I know. I, I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> that must be the bane of your existence is the short arm jokes. No, no, no. It's good. I'm all in. So. And by the way, that's not one I've been carrying around to share. It just occurred to me that I get browbeaten by my dental assistant about my flossing as if it's going to kill me. And so I thought, oh, well, if I couldn't reach, maybe they're right. Maybe the flossing could, I don't know. It makes sense. There's a really fun thing that you did on how to sculpt a sauropod. Is that the right, am I saying that right? A sauropod? Where you show with modeling clay how folks can build their own. And anybody who's listening to this can probably find that on YouTube. Yeah, so I do a lot of uh, school programming. In fact, I help found a charter school about three years ago. So our local school district has third, fourth, and fifth graders, and it's called LENS in that school. So so the learning through the exploration of nature and science. And we now have six teachers that are involved in that. And for that, we do sculpture demonstrations, and we get the kids putting their hands on some clay. And it's a really great avenue to one, have them do art that makes them think about nature and also science. And it makes them think about the world in a, in a different way. You know, it's this perspective that I always talk about with the kids is like creativity is being able to change your vantage and look at the world in a different way. And I think in prehistoric life, it's a lot easier to you basically have to time travel if, if you're thinking about prehistoric life you've got to be able to take yourself and put yourself in that time frame so a lot of my for better or worse of my day is spent in the past the deep time of the past thinking about animals that have been dead for millions and millions of years so it makes me really hard to talk to sometimes <laughs> because i'm so scattered but it's what makes me effective at what i do because I can ha- have that ability to change my perspective and look at things from different angles that are, might be quite novel in this case. 
you'd be the kind of guy I'd want around when I finished my time machine. So I could take you back to explain to me what animals are dangerous and which ones are okay. I would say don't touch that. To about everything, right? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> I was fascinated when you were doing the modeling that it started with a bone map, I guess you would call it, or a, or a skeletal mm -hmm. diagram. Yeah. And just the fact that it came from this flat page and you began to show how the different body shape and leg shapes and neck shape, all that helped you keep it to scale. And that was just sort of an aha, I guess, that's probably very basic in your business. Yeah, having that, that bone diagram to start with is a very simple thing to have, but it is a really great way to think about the mechanics of animals. And it really helps the kids kind of conceptualize. They have a box to stay inside of. So we work on very simple shapes inside of the animal to try and get them to think about anatomy and science and then at the end, they stand this little thing up and it's this little cool little epiphany because they have been working in two dimensions and then all of a sudden it, it starts to walk essentially because you can stand it up. It's a really fun experience. I've done it for thousands of kids, that particular program and keep refining it over time. And it has a lot of value in the classroom. I bet it's a wake up call creatively for a lot of kids. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot of fun too. And there's a lot of difference between, because the kids from kindergarten to fifth grade, just their ability or lack thereof to manipulate their tiny hands to work on these things. It's really fun to see how they do. Well, do you have any other tips about creating or rather solving problems with creativity? Because I would imagine the sculpting tools you use are different for something and the small scale model versus something on a, a bigger mm -hmm. Thing. Do you have to invent your tools as well as you get bigger? One of the, the mantras that I repeat to myself as we move into big clay sculpture is that you're trying to get overall form and you have to get, as we talked about earlier, the silhouette has to be effective and has to read very well from a distance and the first look of a visitor. You, you got to get that stuff right. You got to get that out of the way before you start diving into detail. You can get lost in the weeds so quickly if you start sculpting toenails when you don't even have the shape of the animal right in the first place. So I try and keep, I'm not always excellent at it because I'd love to dive into those tiny details, but getting that, capturing these big forms and the big idea first, and then you can start thinking about the details and moving into the things that people can slowly fall into. And you want it to be a, a discovery in a museum. You want them to be able to walk around it and keep discovering parts of it as they move around it. And you're thinking about texture as well because you said is this one where kids can put their hand on it yeah. so you want that textural thing to feel like a scale or an armor or whatever that element is very dependent on the reach of the kids if they can get to it sometimes i've had to make soft skin squishy stuff make guts and things like that for kids to, to touch so that they can feel that part of the anatomy of an animal so we get the full, full gamut but it's very important to think about the end product and use that to drive your process did you always win in show and tell <laughs> i think i disturbed some of my teachers and i reduced my chances for dates a lot in high school because i i remember in my speech class i skinned a squirrel in class that was sort of a hit with some people, uh, right. but it was a little, again, it was this thing. I pick up this roadkill squirrel. I'm talking about this process. I'm talking about anatomy and I do, I do this thing in class and over the time, you know, in the late seventies, eighties, that was okay. But now I may be frowned upon. I'm not sure.
My guess is that you met your wife after you were working for natural history museums and not just creepy guy picking up roadkill. You are correct, sir. She has a high tolerance for my love of animals and anatomy, so I've, <laughs> I can't say enough about her. So. Well, I'm, I'm sure, and especially with the kids, it sounds like this is not a one-person job in terms of the support of the artist. I think maybe that's an interesting area to share because oftentimes in a family, if there's a writer or a musician or an artist, they are absorbed in their work in a way as, as something that is very time-consuming. Yeah, I'm all in. So my days are, when I am home, I do travel quite a bit, but when I am home, it's every day and as long as I can stand it. It's just that the projects are so all-consuming that you have to do that. We have worked out a great system, you know, for handling life, but the work-life balance thing is not great. I don't have oh. a great handle on it, but we do walk and we do take time you know, to have coffee in the morning, but I do, you got to make it happen. So it's that uh, magic, magical thinking. It's that trick has to work, right? So we, we make it work. You don't take the work home with you. Like when you're barbecuing, you don't go, I'd like to put this chicken back together or save your ribs, kids. I'm going to make a cow after dinner. I may have done that before. There are times when my wife thinks that I might be looking at her a bit strange and she thinks you're, are you anatomizing me? Are you studying how her eye looks or something like that? So I have to be careful. To, to not do that. But. I love several things about you. I do love that you put the art first and not just the art, but the realism, the realistic and believability of the animal because you have a bigger mission. In addition to being an artist, it's the salute to nature, it's the science, and it's the bringing the wonder to the viewer that wants them to probably do more research and find out a little bit more about the animal. And that takes a lot for an artist to sort of go invisible in that situation. So I compliment you on that because nowadays every artist is a, they're an Instagram model where they're in front of their art. You can see their forearm and everything in the picture of themselves. It's admirable. Thank you. It's always been the kind of my goal to make sure that the content comes first. I'm happiest when I walk into a museum and I hear people react to a sculpture that I've made, you know, it elicits something from them. They're like, you know, I, could, I better look that up. Or, you know, the kid goes, what? Look at that. That's incredible. If I get the chance to spend any time in front of anything I've made and you get that kind of response, I mean, that is, that's just phenomenal. I can see you in a security outfit wandering around these museums, getting close to people, <laughs> just, just to hear them ooh and ah. I've been very lucky. Well, we are lucky. I will say that I know you're coming from Missouri, which is the show me state, and we appreciate you showing and telling us all about your world and your art and the wonder that you do. Will you tell us the website where they can find out more about your studio and see some of your art? Yeah, if you look up stobstudios.com, then you'll right. be able to, to uh, see pictures of my work and also uh, there's some links to some videos that talk about the process of, of making it. Uh, that's Stab Studios, S-T-A-A-B. Correct. And I am here to tell you that I'm not too far away from being a dinosaur myself, so I expect you to do a nice job in the restoration. <laughs> I think you're safe for a bit. <laughs> a little bit? Well, I'm still not flossing. You can't make me. <laughs> Thank you for the opportunity to speak to you. Gary, it's my pleasure. It was so, so great. You're amazing. I think the best way to send Gary off is with this special tune, courtesy of They Might Be Giants.
I love digging in the dirt with just a pick and brush. Finding fossils is my aim, so I'm never in a rush. Cause the treasures that I seek are rare and ancient things like Velociraptor's jaw or Archaeopteryx's wings. Now all the kids who want to see them are lining up at the museum. I am a paleontologist. That's who I am. That's who I am. Thanks for listening. Take a moment to subscribe and we will hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative in Austin, Texas, under the savvy producership of Amanda Rosenberg, with sound editing under the steady hand of Tucker Hazen. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp. With additional production support and sanity provided by Delilah Lovejoy, Casey Franco, Tony Deo, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. You heard that right. It's dot fun, as in cross your T's and dot your fun. Ciao for now. Call.